Christian, and we will rise, and it's promised to us in God's Word that we will, and that's what we're looking at. We've been looking at it now for some weeks, and uh, I jokingly said uh, last week, I think it was a joke, um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe we'll finish before we rise, talking about resurrection. I know it's, uh, it's, it's, for me at least, been refreshing. It's been good. It's been very good. And so, selfishly, I say, you know, I hope it's been good for you, because <laughs> it has been for me. And, uh, and so I'm excited today to finish, hopefully, by God's grace, uh, the paragraph we've been dealing with for two weeks. This is the third message, part three. He must reign. The third part. He must reign. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28, having looked at fairly thoroughly verses 20 through 22, though there are more things that could be said. Um, I don't want to continue there, but I want to move from that, launch out into what Paul says next. And we need to remember what all has been said by Paul. Talking about the resurrection, he first in the first 11 verses gives a defense of the orthodox gospel. The gospel, the good news is Christ died according to the scriptures and was buried and was resurrected on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's, that's the good news, right? Now, some have said, you talk about telling people about the gospel. And then you don't just tell them those three things. No, because it's necessary to set up the gospel. The good news needs to be set up with the bad news. Because it's truly not good news to anyone who doesn't know there's bad news. Right? And so, sure, we start out by talking about the sinfulness of mankind. What is sin and how does it affect us? How deeply does it affect us? How long has it been affecting us? All these issues have to be dealt with. How much will it affect us if we remain in our sin? All of that has to be talked about. Hell has to be talked about. But that's not the good news. That's all awful news. The good news, Paul says, is the statement, Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures. Was buried and resurrected on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the good news. That's the good news. And so he gives us that in the first 11 verses and then testifies to the resurrection with all the eyewitness accounts that he gives us. And then he moves to verse 12 through 19 and he deals with the fact that if Christ has not been raised, then none of us will be raised. And if Christ was not raised, then our faith is in vain and your faith is in vain and our preaching is in vain. Truly, if Christ is not raised, we're talking about a dead man who can have hope placing their hope in a dead man. That's his conclusion in that paragraph. And we've looked at that. And then he moves into verse 20. But indeed, Christ has been resurrected from the dead. He doesn't want to leave any doubt. He just says it plainly. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, and we talked about that in two ways, and I stand by the fact that it's both of these things in his mind, I think. He had ag agricultural uh, world around him. He had people who understood first fruits. And the fact that the farmer gathered the first fruits, and instinctively the first fruits were put away quickly, 
for your profit because you weren't guaranteed there wouldn't be a rainstorm, a windstorm, some pestilence that would strike, you'd lose the rest of your crop. Anybody in their right mind would put the first fruits away, right? Not in the nation of Israel. In the nation of Israel, the second meaning of first fruits comes out. God had said, Give me your first fruits. Give me your first fruits. And the priest will wave them before the Lord your God. That you may be holy. And then for taking the Passover lamb, slain, one, one year old, without spot or blemish. The two were tied together, the first fruits and the Passover, tied together in a sense. And so we look and say, but he calls Christ the first fruits. And I said at the end last week that Leviticus 23, verses 9 through 12, as we look at verse 23, really give us the depth of the theology in that one statement. Christ the first fruits. To us it looks minuscule. It means meaningless, really. You're not farmers. Most of you don't have a garden. Right? And so, what does that even mean, first fruits? Well, Leviticus 23, 9 through 12 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. Don't misunderstand. They did not bring the gift of the first fruits so that the rest of their crop would be good. This is not pagan thought. The crop's made by the time the first fruits come. If the first bowls of cotton burst forth and there's no other bowls, you've got your full crop. And when those first bowls of cotton break open, all the other bowls are there. They're just not breaking open yet. So there's no hope. If there's no bowls, you don't gather up your cotton real quick and take it to the priest and say, hey, wave this in front of the Lord so that the rest of the stems will have fruit on them. No. It's either made or it's not. This isn't about having a good harvest. God's not telling them some mystical way to get a good crop and get rich. It's not it at all. It's not a pagan thing. This is we have our faith and our trust in God and in God alone. We're not trusting in the first fruits. We're not going to can them and sit on them in case we don't have the rest of our harvest. No, we're giving them to the Lord. And he waves them, the priest does, before the Lord, and you are accepted. What is all that about? Well, it's preparing us for the theology of resurrection. Christ is our first fruits. Literally, when he died on the cross before the Lord and went into the tomb... When he was resurrected, it is as if the sheaf of the first fruits of Leviticus 23 was waving before God Almighty, saying, I am the promise and guarantee that there is a future resurrection. If Christ won't resurrect those who have been in him, then he's not a very good representative. But Paul says he will. All those who were in Adam die, and all those who are in Christ live. He's already told us that. And now he says... Christ is the first fruits. And so this first fruits analogy goes so deep. It goes so deep. It goes so to the point of resurrection. So he says here, Christ is the first fruit. 
Okay? Then at His coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subject to God the Father who put all things in subjection under Him that God the Father may be all in all. This is the ending of the paragraph. And so, we're going to flow right out of the teaching of representation. Those who are in Christ, remember last week I said, if you are in Christ, everything Christ is doing, you also are doing. Christ died. Everyone in Christ has died, Paul says. Christ was resurrected from the dead. Everyone who is in Christ has been resurrected from the dead. Christ is the first fruits of the bodily resurrection, which points us to a bodily resurrection. It's coming. It's coming. Christ is seated in the heavenly places on the throne of David forevermore, reigning over all creation. He's doing it now. Ephesians 2, we are seated with Him in the heavenly places. What are we doing there? Revelation 20 says, we are reigning with Him. Literally, right now, reigning. He is the victor. And we are victorious. He is coming again, and when we see Him, we will be just like Him. All because of what Paul says in this passage. I want you to think with me here quickly. This may be very different from what you've heard in the past, okay? Some of you it won't be very different. Some of you it will be very different. I want you to think with me. Paul's entire purpose for writing 1 Corinthians 15 is to do what? Clear up the confusion about the resurrection. Isn't it? They're confused. Some are saying there is no resurrection. And now he's telling them there is a resurrection. Correct? Isn't that his purpose? If that's Paul's purpose, all I'm saying is Paul would not, I believe, leave anything out in the description of the resurrection leading to further complication and misunderstanding. So if there are two resurrections, Paul would say there are two distinct, separate resurrections. But he doesn't say that. He says, Christ, the first fruits, then at His coming, all who are in Christ, then the end. And we need to deal with why He does that. Why does He not tell us there is a resurrection and then a rapture and then a thousand years and then another resurrection? If He's clearing up for us the thoughts about the resurrection, it would only make sense a good teacher would plainly write it for his students. He doesn't. 
We've got to deal with it. And there are indeed ways to deal with it. Charles Feinberg, a great theologian, who taught at Talbot Seminary for years, the Jew, both ethnically and spiritually. When he came to this passage, as staunch as he was in his theology of the end time, he said, and I quote, unless a student keeps in mind our system of thinking, he will quickly be confused. Wait a minute. Why must he have your system to understand what Paul clearly wrote? Maybe we should understand the Scripture and see if our system fits the Scriptures. And that's not a rebuke out of hatred. That's a kind and gentle rebuke to people like myself who tend to be systematic and place a framework around the Scripture and make it fit what we wanted to say. I can be just as guilty as the next. And so we have to be careful. This scripture has caused a lot of struggle, a lot of concern. And I'm sure it's caused you to stumble. I'm sure it's caused you to stumble. And so I want to try to, by the, hopefully by the, the Spirit teaching here, in your hearts, bear witness to what I think the scripture clearly says here. What is this? Well, we see here that our resurrection is secure because Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. We don't have to wonder, is there a future harvest? We know there is because the first fruits have already been brought into the barn, taken to the priest, weighed before the Lord, and we are accepted. You see that? We are accepted. Therefore, we will be resurrected. That's a beautiful hope. Now we say, secondly, the resurrection has an, a distinct order which Paul himself gives us in detail. Beginning in verse 23. Christ, look at verse 23. Christ, the first fruits. This is the first resurrection, a specific gen- resurrection that leads to a general resurrection. He's going to tell us about the general resurrection in just a moment. The specific leads to the general. If the specific has happened and the sheaf has been weighed before the Lord, what Paul is saying is then you know the general will happen. The specific harvest of the first fruits has taken place, Paul is saying. It has been weighed before the Lord. You have been accepted. Therefore, in Christ you will be resurrected in a future harvest. We don't know when the harvest will be, but we know it will be. We have full confidence. That's the first in the order. Christ... The first fruits. Secondly, in this order of Paul, then at his coming, those who are in Christ. This is where this trouble, the trouble begins, right? Because the Greek manuscript seems to uh, leave a little wiggle room. The words then, the word then leaves room for a gap of time. A gap of time. In other words, Christ was resurrected, it did not mean immediately everybody else would be resurrected. It meant Christ was resurrected and then when He comes again, there will be a resurrection, a second resurrection. So there's a gap. Right now the gap's how long? Over 2,000 years, right at 2,000 years? And so 
It's there, and that wiggle room is there. Then, at His coming, those who are in Christ. But look, He's very specific. He's very specific. I'm laboring at this because I wanted you to see it. Then, at His coming, those who belong to Christ. You say, well, there's a great gap there. Yes, there is. And He gives us a definite ending to that gap. The the, uh, coming of Christ. See it? When will the general resurrection happen? At the coming of Christ. That would be what he's leading them in. So what is the general resurrection and how is it taught throughout Scripture? Having seen there will be a general resurrection here in Paul, we are now free to see what the general resurrection and how it is described throughout other writings. Okay? That's keeping things in context. So let's look at that. Hold your place here and turn with me to Jesus' words on the general resurrection in John chapter 5. Jesus gives us a diagram, in a sense, a way of understanding resurrection. And this, for me, has become the key passage on understanding resurrection. John 5, 19 through 29. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. Speaking, I believe, about the resurrection. The greater work that's coming is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. God's going to do that. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. The Father is going to resurrect Jesus and give Him life. And Jesus is going to, through the power of the Father, give life to all who are in Him. You see that? Now let's see what He says. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. He has placed all things under His feet. That's what judging is. It's placing things under the feet. That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. I I read that slowly because it's important. If you hear Jesus' words and you believe in God who sent Him, you have right now, present tense, eternal life. You see that? A resurrection has occurred. What? A resurrection? Yes. A real, legitimate resurrection has occurred. How, Carlton? Through the Spirit. We also call it being born from above. We also call it regeneration. Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, lavishing His great love upon you, has raised you up in Christ and seated you in the heavenly places. That has happened to anyone who believes in Jesus and God who sent Him. That resurrection has happened. Look what happens when you get eternal life. That man that believes does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. 
Do you see that? That's speaking about resurrection spiritually. What happens at regeneration? What happens there means you have no judgment coming. Now he switches gears. Clearly switches gears because he puts another truly, truly there. Truly, truly. I say to you, an hour is coming. It's not here now. But it is coming in the future. An hour is coming. And now here. Excuse me. I got ahead of myself. And is now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. I, I got ahead of myself. I'm, I'm going so slow I, I messed my own self up. An hour is coming. And it's now here. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Him, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. This speaking of spiritual resurrection. The dead men hear the voice of the Son of God and live now. They're regenerated. They're made alive. Do not marvel at this. They were marveling at it because they could not believe it. I mean, it, it was hard to fathom. When he told Nicodemus, Nicodemus could not first at, at all believe it. When he said, you must be born again. It's a tough thing. Do I have to go back into my mother's womb and be born again? He couldn't understand it. But Jesus says, don't marvel when I tell you this. For, listen to this, an hour is coming. Not now is. It's coming in the future, as I said earlier about the wrong verse. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs, not that they are simply dead, as in dead in trespasses and sins, but in a tomb. That's a word, that's a, a phrase that's not used about spiritual death. That's used of physical death. He shifted gears. In the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Here it is. 1 Corinthians 15. Explained. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What we have here is Jesus doing the opposite of what Paul is doing. But it proves Paul's point completely. And Paul proves Jesus' point completely. What we have here is Paul speaking about a physical resurrection that assures us of spiritual resurrection. Jesus is talking about the spiritual resurrection which is happening right now when you hear the voice of the Son of Man and believe in the One who sent Him. You will live and the death and judgment have no hold over you anymore. You are free. And because of that, don't marvel at that. Because those same people, along with everyone else, will hear my voice one day and come out of their tombs. All of them together... To face a judgment, one judgment, after one resurrection of the body. Those who have done good to life, those who have done evil to judgment. It's clear. We have 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 57. And we'll move quicker now that I've, I think I've belabored it. Now I just want to hammer you with it. I tell you this. 
brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That is a serious problem for anyone who believes that non-resurrected people will go into any kind of kingdom. It's a serious problem. Because Paul says the kingdom of God, which is how Matthew refers to it and John refers to it in their Gospels, the kingdom of God cannot be inherited by flesh and blood, but only by those who have been resurrected. So we're entering into the consummated kingdom, the consummated kingdom as fully resurrected beings, not looking towards a future resurrection, not some resurrected and some not resurrected, resurrected. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. One resurrection after one trumpet blast for one judgment. Paul is being very blunt. He doesn't want us to be confused. For this perishable body must put on imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. The last enemy is death. He's already said that's the last enemy. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the victory. He gives us the victory. That's a right now statement. You have victory over sin and death. Not a future. And he says, so based on that, you have hope right now to live and serve the living God. This is a challenge from the Apostle Paul to anyone who would put off or delay the coming of the kingdom. He says, it's coming. It's here and it's going to be consummated in the end and you need to get on the boat now before it sails. It's a beautiful thing. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. You didn't think I was going to go there, did you? Surely he's not foolish enough to go to the passage about the rapture. Sure I am. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, He's basing it on the resurrection, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Him all who have fallen asleep. All of heaven is going to be emptied. They're all coming with Jesus. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep in the resurrection. It won't go before them. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel and what? The sound of the trumpet of God. Paul said, at the sounding of the trumpet in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the same trumpet. It's happening. It's not some secret that the rest of the world's left out on. Look at all the verbiage here. A cry of command, a voice of an archangel, a trumpet that's sounding from heaven. Do you think anybody on the earth won't hear these things? They will hear it. And it'll be too late. 
because all of heaven will be emptied. When they raise their eyes to see what this thundering from heaven is, all of heaven will be coming to earth. It's too late. And they will run and want the hills to cover them from His pure eyes that are coming to judge those who are both good and evil. It's a beautiful thing we're talking about. And the dead in Christ will rise first. They come first. He's Paul again. He's all about order. They come first. Then we who are alive will be caught up with Him in the air. You say, there it is. Rapturo. Rapture. The only place in the Testament, New Testament or Old that the word rapture is used. This whole theology has been built around a secret rapture. is built off this one verse. It doesn't exist anywhere else. And it's clear from the Greek what it means. The only way it's ever used in ancient Greek that we can find is the welcoming of a king. A triumphal entry. When a king who had conquered came, bringing with him his legions, a city that was ready to repent and be under his rulership, ran to him. They did not dare wait behind the walls because when he got to that gate, he was going to conquer everyone left in that city that would not bow the knee. Philippians chapter 2. So when they heard the conquering kings coming with his army, they said, let's not wait behind the precipice of these walls. Run to him and hail him as the king. That's what's happening. Those of us who are alive will be called out from among those who have not repented and we will welcome him as a king. I see here the actual triumphal entry. The one that took place in the Gospels was a false triumphal entry in some ways. Christ came as the King. They came out and said, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. They were hailing Him as the King, but in three days they wanted Him dead. It was a false triumphal entry from their standpoint. But this one in 1 Thessalonians is not false. This is the real deal. We will be caught up to Him And we will be with Him, not in the air forever. Look at what it says. And we shall forever be with the Lord. I believe that with all my heart. We're caught up to Him and ushering Him in. He stands in judgment over the nations. And we're with Him forever. It's a beautiful thing that we're talking about. Encourage one another with these words. What would be the need to encourage anybody with these words if they're for another generation? Only. If it's some secret, how will we know? And then the next passage down from that is a call to holiness. Because you are going to be with Him, you need to now live in His holiness, expecting His return any moment because it's like a thief in the night. Some say, that's the secret, Carlton. Does a thief announce his coming? No, but when he comes, everybody knows it. Jesus won't announce his coming prior to coming, but once he comes, everybody in the house, which is the earth, will know he came. Won't be anybody left to wonder. Was that Jesus? Maybe that wasn't. Maybe we, maybe we wait further. No, it's clear. The whole world will see him and bow the knee at that moment. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 10. Yeah, it, 
It's another one of those passages that we sometimes bend out of shape to fit our systems. This is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? Paul, I mean, Peter here refers back to the Old Testament word from the prophets. He is grabbing for himself everything in the Old Testament in way of prophecy of the coming of the Lord and saying, I'm going to tell you what it's like. When they scoff at you, I'm going to give you an answer. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing on as they were from the beginning of creation. That's what the scoffers are saying. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the Word of God. And that means... And that by means of this, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He's talking about the pre-flood world being destroyed by the same word which created it, the word which caused the flood that destroyed that world. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. What word? A command from the Lord, a voice of an archangel, and a trumpet. That's the word it's waiting on. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Be careful when you read the Scripture that you understand it. He's not saying one day is a thousand years. Nor is he saying that a thousand years is one day. That would be foolish talk. He's saying that time, God is not on our time. He doesn't count time as we count time. Ever count time like we count time. He's not bound by it. The Lord is not slow in fulfilling His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. First Thessalonians, like a thief. Jesus said, like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There's, I'm just making it clear. There's a coming of the Lord with a shout of an archangel, with a voice of command, and with a trumpet. And when He comes, everyone in Christ will be caught up to Him, and they will come and judge this world, which is right now enslaved to sin. And they will put all of His enemies under His feet, completely death being the last of those, so that we live with Him in the new heaven and new earth, which is what Peter, by the way, goes on to talk about. He doesn't go on to talk about an earthly millennial, he goes on to talk about a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 20, 1 through 6. And there were gasps. No, surely. Yes. 
The same writer wrote this as recorded our Lord's words in John 5. I think they're foremost in his thoughts as he writes here what he sees. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, an archangel coming down from heaven, I believe, with a shout. He's holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him. So that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Well, Carl and I was following you until you started this passage. Now I've lost you. How can the world can this line up with what you've said about those other passages? Well, for time's sake, we won't run through all of it, but just jot down John 12 and read John 12 for me. And you'll see the binding of Satan in John 12. And you'll understand better why he's being chained in this passage. So that he might not, what? Deceive the nations any longer. He's not being bound from every activity, but from one activity, deceiving the nations. Prior to Christ, the nations lived in utter darkness, and Israel had the light. They would not take the light to all of the world, but the true Israel did. He opened the door wide to the Gentiles. And Satan no longer holds them under the sway of his power. They are coming to him out of every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every place across this great planet. They're coming. We are living in that age when they're coming. And they're coming because God, through Christ, has bound the strong man and is plundering his house. (laughs) I love that verse. God has tied Satan up and said, you sit there in the corner, son, and watch. I'm redeeming mankind. This is the God we serve. You say, I don't know if my neighbor will believe in Jesus. Preach the gospel and see. God's bound that strong man. And he's calling sons to himself. And he's making Satan watch his own demise. You thought you would be God? I'll show you I'm God. Sit down and watch. And he roars. And he seeks people to devour. But like... The great theologian of the past said, His teeth to me are like gums and pillows. He cannot eat me. I belong to Christ. Oh, he roars and he scares me because I'm weak, but he can't have me. Christ has tied him up. I'm just simply trying to make the point that Paul, I think, is very clear and the Scripture is very clear everywhere That what we are to expect, what these Corinthians were to expect is that Christ has been resurrected. And in his coming, there will be a resurrection and the end will come. The purpose of the resurrection, the general harvest, is to bring them before the throne of God and judge them. Those who did good under righteous life and those who did evil under death. That's the point here in 1 Corinthians 15. If I haven't missed it, the end, the judgment, when Christ judges all men as either in him or in Adam. And after serving his mediatorial reign, he then judges and he delivers the kingdom to his father. That's here in this passage. It's a very clever way for Paul to write about it. For he must 
Wait, excuse me. Then, verse 24, he come, comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the God the Father. And you say, well, isn't he, hasn't he been ruling since before time began? Yes, as the Creator. But from the resurrection, he has been reigning as the Son of David. He has been reigning over all of the earth as a mediator between God and man. And at this judgment, when he is done judging, he will hand that over to God the Father. So that he might get all glory. He will deliver that kingdom over to the Father. Having done everything necessary that they might be saved. Calling them to himself patiently over thousands of years. Calling them patiently to himself. At the end when he has judged all things. He will place it back in the Father's hand. God has given him a gift. And it's called a bride. And when God gives him the bride. He will then present himself and that bride back to the Father. That God might be all in all. That's a beautiful picture, isn't it? I mean, that's it. That is it. No need to be worried. No need to be concerned. No need to lose hope. No need to be concerned about people who are dying or people who are living. We are in Christ and we're safe. That's what he's telling these loved ones at Corinth. So he says he must reign, which tells us he is reigning and tells us he is reigning until he has put his enemies under his feet. Now, that that might cause you a problem, and I want to, as we get near the end here, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated at Christ's resurrection, and it will be consummated at His second coming. That's strange language to us, because we don't live in a kingdom. And there are no great kingdoms any longer on the earth. He's reigning now, verse 25 says. Look at it, verse 25. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He must reign. He is reigning, is what it's saying. Psalm 110.1. That's what he's quoting here. He's reigning until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. He is subduing his enemies right now. Verses 25 and 26. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So he's destroying his enemies now and death's the last one to go. How is he destroying his enemies? Through the process of sanctification, no less. Through the establishment of his church, no less. Through the calling of lost men and women and children to himself. Satan bound, looking, watching as the heathens come to the temple of Jesus Christ to worship the living God. And then once worshiping Him, living pure and holy lives. And He's conquering, conquering, conquering. Let me, let me just tell you how this works for me now that I've studied it and come to a full conviction on it. When the temptation to lust, to lie, to take what's not mine comes before me, I used to try to use all manner of ways to fight that. Most of them are my own invention. Now I simply say, Christ is reigning. That's what I tell myself. Christ is reigning. He has power over that sin. I have power over that sin because of Christ who is reigning and I'm reigning with Him. I will not sin because I have a reigning and ruling Lord Jesus Christ. He then is my sanctification, not some earthly way of trying to deal with sin. That fails, ultimately. You've been there. The harder you resist, the more you want it. 
It keeps burning. It keeps burning. Slay the burning. You slay the burning with the Spirit, is what Romans 8 says. You put to death the things of the flesh by the Spirit. Not just put them to death, but by the Spirit. And what Spirit? The reigning Spirit of Christ is what you put it to death with. We have a victorious Christ in heaven. Why do I need this picture? I have a victorious Christ in heaven. Why do I need to lie in this situation? I have a reigning, victorious Christ in heaven and I am with Him. Why must I take my neighbor's things? I don't need them. I have Him. And with Him I have everything. A full inheritance. So I think it goes in large measure to holiness and sanctification to accept that the kingdom is here and it is coming in its fullness at His second coming. We're not waiting one day to have victory over our sin. We have victory. That's what I'm saying. I think that's what Paul's saying. He will and is, in some ways, now ruling over every enemy and all enemies. In Matthew 28:18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He's reigning. Colossians 2, 13-15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, resurrected you. That's the first resurrection. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. We have no judgment over us. This, is he, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. That's the word of Paul to us from Colossians. He's ruling over his enemies now. The only thing preventing sanctification in our life is us. It's not his lack of willingness to sanctify us. Or his ability is not limited. It is our own sinfulness that limits. And so how do we remedy our desire to sin? We bow the knee and cry out to Him as King. Reign in me today. He must reign because the glory of God must be revealed before all men and in all creation. I just end with these two passages. The glory of God so that God might be all in all. Romans 8, 18 through 25 Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy being compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's inaugurated, but it's going to be consummated, fully revealed. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not a coming childbirth, but it's groaning right now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What a beautiful passage about the coming resurrection and fulfillment of all of this. I said earlier about a king 
and we might not understand it. I think we don't understand it. Christ is the king. He truly reigns over all the earth now. You say, but it doesn't look like it in some places. No. In the ancient empires, a decree would be sent out by ambassadors. Caesar Augustus has conquered your land. You are his subjects. Willingly submit now. If you do not, when Caesar's armies come, they will crush all his enemies under his feet. Ambassadors ran to that country and handed out the letter and proclaimed the letter loud. Are you now shocked when Paul says we are his ambassadors? What does he mean if he doesn't mean that he is already the conquered, conquering king, conquering all the kings of this earth, and now he's sending his army of ambassadors to the world to proclaim his victory and to say, you submit now or you submit later. Now it is easy. It goes well with you. Later you will be crushed under his feet. Why should I share the gospel? God's going to do what he wants to do. That would have been like an ambassador of Caesar looking at Caesar and saying, why do I have to go take this message over to Ephesus? It's a long journey. I get tired. Someone might give me a hard time. They might not believe. I'm not going. How would Caesar respond? Oh, you're not? Okay. Change of roles. You're now my prisoner. Sentenced to death for high treason. That's what Caesar would do. Well, what does your father do? He said, you're my ambassador. Go tell them. And you say, I'm scared to go. They might not believe. And he's patient. He said, I'll forgive you. Go. You want some assurance to go. Okay, I'll give you some assurance to go. You need some preparation so that you know I want you to go. I'll make preparation. Here it is. Go. Go tell them. What a loving king. We deserve the gallus. And we get the glory. What a loving king. So in your work tomorrow, it's not that, oh, I've got to begrudgingly go tell five people about Jesus or God's going to cut my head off. No. You've already died in Christ. And now you're alive in Christ. And here is ambassador. And he says, go tell them what's happened to you through the good news. Go tell them my good news. Don't you know I'm coming again? Tell them. It's for His glory that we go. Because His glory will be revealed. And everyone needs to be prepared to receive it. And it will be revealed in such a glorious way. It will not be a secret. Revelation 21, 22 through 27 says, And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. I'm not looking for a physical temple. My temple is Jesus Christ. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. When the sun comes back bright, look at it. Just try. 
You can't. And our glorious lamp will be Christ. And we will look at Him face to face in His glory. By its light, listen. By its light, all the nations will walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into this city. And its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no, there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Sit in the corner, Satan, and watch your demise. The nations will come to me, every tribe, every tongue, every ethnic group. And when my city comes, my temple will be filled with your past ex-servants. They used to be yours, but they are mine. I am victorious over sin. I am victorious over death. I am victorious over the grave. I am victorious. And everyone in me is victorious. And then He will cast him into the abyss. And it will be no more. No darkness. Listen. If you don't want that, then you don't know Him. Won't you know Him? He's coming. And when He comes, He brings all His glory. And if the knee hasn't already been bowed, you will not be caught up with Him in the air. And you will be changed to incorruptible flesh to suffer eternal second death. Don't do it. Come to Him now. Let's pray. Father, it's Your Word.